Our scripture reading today is Matthew 3, verses 1 through 17. Our scripture reader is John Borgen. And uh, in honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John was a, now John wore garments and wild camels here and their left. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in River Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft will be burned with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is it fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. So we are in a series in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and we're kind of just getting started. And um, this today is part, part six, and uh, I'm going to kind of do a magic trick today. That was a whole chapter right there. And I think some of you think it's impossible for that to happen, but uh, we're going to try. Um, and, and actually, I'm cheating a little bit. I'll tell you about that later. Um, but, you know, don't get your hopes up too much about moving this fast because, you know, chapters five, six, and seven, are, like, literally might take forever. So, um, but we're, we're going to make some progress today and get through some, a, chunk, a chunk of scripture. And it is, uh, it's, it's a, a significant chunk of scripture. I mean, every, every text is... Uh, but this one, boy, has, has something to say uh, to us and, and, and for us. So as we come to John chapter, or Matthew chapter 3, um, you know, we're reminding ourselves that this book, this gospel of Matthew, is written by a guy named Matthew, uh, one of Jesus' followers. And it, 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 uh, it wasn't uh, available for 30 or 40 years after Jesus died, after Jesus died and rose again. And, and it, it's, it's like, why, why did it take so long? This is Matthew's life work. 
Like Matthew put all of himself into this. And so it's like for, for decades, Matthew investigated and wrote and rewrote and thought this through under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and laid it out with incredible intentionality. And so when we run into things, it's, it's good for us to say, what is Matthew wanting us to catch from the way that he's putting this here? Is, is, is if we look at the way that Matthew introduces these two main characters, the main characters of, of chapter 3, John the Baptist, and we often refer to him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, uh, and, and Jesus. As you look at how he introduces them, it's almost like Matthew wants John to function kind of like the Old Testament and Jesus to function like the New Testament. John is more like the law, and Jesus is more like the gospel. John is more like the bad news, and Jesus is more like the good news. Matthew's approach seems to be confronting us with a really stark reality. We don't see Jesus as clearly without first seeing John the Baptist. And so the way we're going to tackle this chapter is this week, we're going to basically look at John and Jesus and their interaction. And then next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at Jesus and the Father and Jesus's baptism at the end of the chapter. So we actually are taking two weeks on chapter three. But um, th- th- this, this week, it's, it's John, John and Jesus. And it's like Matthew wants us to grasp what John the Baptist is saying and doing in order to see what Jesus says and does more clearly. And it is, a, it is intended to be a, a, a gift to us. So first, the, the message of John, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we, we, we see what it is that John is out there doing. And John was preaching a message of repentance. If you look at chapter 3 there at the beginning, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he's out there preaching. He's kind of shouting. He's a little bit of an, an eccentric guy. Uh, maybe in the scripture reading you saw his, his wardrobe and his diet were both kind of unique things. And there's some historical dynamics going on there. But let's just suffice it to say he's a little weird. And uh, he's roaming around in, in the wilderness, and he is out there with a loud voice um, preaching and, and calling out. And, and what is he calling out? Well, he's calling out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he quotes one of the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Isaiah. And he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John says, like, I'm doing what Isaiah said somebody was going to do. And that is, they're going to go out in the desert, and they're going, to, they're going to cry out. They're going to go out there yelling, and they're going to go out there preaching. And they're going to say, get ready, because the Lord is on his way. Make his paths straight. And so John is out there preaching this message that sin is a real problem. You know, I just said a second ago that we're on the verge of the season of Lent. And one of the emphases of the, of the season of Lent is confession. It's a recognition of the, of the severity and the seriousness of sin. Ash Wednesday, actually the, 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 the point of Ash Wednesday is this. From, from dust or from ash you were made, and to, and to dust you're going to return. And if there's no gospel, that's all there is. Like, sin has separated us from the source of life, from, the, from God our creator. And if something doesn't get done about sin, then dust is all there is. Ash is all there is. That's all that's going to be left. And John is roaming around the wilderness yelling about this message. 
Sin is a real problem. Repent, because the kingdom is it's, it's right here. It's just around the corner. It's right behind me. And so he is out in the wilderness declaring this message of repentance. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew wants us to feel the weightiness of that. Matthew wants us to hear John's message and recognize this is not how the other gospels introduce us to John the Baptist. Matthew introduces us to John the Baptist on purpose like this because he wants us to feel the weightiness of the message that John the Baptist was preaching. Sin is a real problem. And Jesus is right behind me. Get your hearts right. Align your life. Align your life in agreement with what I'm saying. So John was preaching that. And then it tells us that he was baptizing those who heard what he actually said. When he said, like, look, guys, we got to get ready. The kingdom is at hand. The Messiah is right behind me. We got to get our hearts ready. We got to get an alignment with this message that sin's real and sin's a real problem. And so anyone who heard that and responded to his call to repent, John John was baptizing them, probably in the river Jordan. And if you look at verse 6, it says that as as John is out there doing this, it says that they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Like, that's what the people were doing. John's preaching a message of repentance. He's baptizing anybody who responded. And what's this response look like? The people are confessing their sins. This idea of confession. You know, what, what, what is confession? We've had both the words confession and repentance now in this text. John said, repent. And now in verse 6, we find out that the people are confessing their sins. Are, are those synonyms? Well, I think they can be used as synonyms, but, but it's not the best way to think about them. They're, they're actually they're pointing at, at something a little bit different. If you were to say, what, what is confession? Confession is to say that that thing is sin, and, I'm, and I did it. So, so confessing is looking at, uh, you, let's say you told, you told a lie. Confessing would be to say, I, like, lying is sin, contrary to God's good design, and I did it. That, that, that is confession. And so if you're trying to raise children, you know, this, this may be quite the journey of when, when they are doing something wrong or have done something wrong, to get them to the place to where they can actually say, what I just did was contrary to God's good design, and I'm responsible. Like, not my sister, not my brother, not the dog. Like, I am responsible. And it's not just kids, is it? It's, it's us. We have a hard time confessing our sin. We, we have a hard time looking at what we've done and admitting that that is contrary to God's design and that I am responsible for it. And yet, as John preached in the wilderness and the people heard his message, verse 6 tells us that that's exactly what they were doing. The, the word confession could be translated admitting. So Matthew says, John's out there preaching, and you know what? The people that heard him, they, just, they started admitting their sin. They stopped hiding from it. They stopped justifying it. They stopped downplaying it, and they started admitting their sin. Like, that was not right, and I'm responsible for it. That, that's confession. And then repentance has the sense of turning. So to confess it would be to say, what I did was wrong, and I'm responsible for it. But you could just two minutes later do it again. 
You could just do the wrong thing again and be the person responsible for doing it again. And you could admit that you did it again. But like that, that's just, you're just confessing. To repent actually has this sense of turning. One, one of the things, though, that we can miss with, with biblical repentance is that repentance isn't just turning from doing bad things to doing good things. Biblical repentance isn't just stop doing bad things and start doing good things. It's much deeper than that. Biblical repentance is actually saying, stop trusting in yourself and turn and start trusting in God. Instead of you deciding the way to live your life, turn from that and put your hope in God. Put your trust in God. Now, what will be the fruit of trusting God? Well, it's, it's, it's obedience. It's, it's actually doing good things. But the turning in our heart is not just the external of stop doing bad, start doing good. It's actually way deeper. It's at the heart level. And it's a call to say, you're putting your trust in something else. Why why did you disobey God? Because in that moment, you thought there was a better option. Repentance is to turn from trusting in yourself and turn to trusting in the God of, of heaven. And we see in this text that both of these things are happening. John's call to repent. The people are confessing. So they're admitting their sin and then they're turning from their sin back to the God of heaven. You know, as John is out there preaching, it's like sin is the great equalizer. You know, <laughs> there's a, a, a story with Jesus where he interacts with a crowd of people and he's like, all right, how about this? Whoever's innocent, you can throw the first stone. And everybody just looks at him and then they just start dropping the rocks and they walk away. Because everybody knows, like, I'm not innocent. I'm I'm in that category of one who... Sin is the great equalizer. And John is out in in the wilderness saying, listen to me. Sin is a problem. And you need to align yourself with this reality that sin's a problem because the Messiah is right behind me. Here's, Here's the good news. We can actually be free from sin. But we're only free from sin when we face it and we own it before God. And that John is inviting the people to do this. He's not saying, act like you don't sin. He's not saying, I'll give you a pass, just go, don't do it again. No, he's saying, you've got to admit that that's the situation. You've got to admit that the default condition of your heart is to want to do your own thing. It's not to obey God, it's to want to do your own thing. And so John invites them into this reality that if you'll own your sin, that's the road to freedom right there. If you'll face it, if you'll own it, if you'll drag it into the light, as we read later in the New Testament. And the Old Testament agrees. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The problem is not that you've sinned. Everybody's done that. The question is, what are you going to do with your sin? And John the Baptist says, let's get aligned and agree that sin is a real problem. We're all in that category. It's true of all of us. And boy, the people who heard him admitted that. They confessed their sins and then went into the water uh, to be baptized. Now, I don't want you to miss this. He baptized the people. It's what it tells us clearly in verse 6. And they were baptized by him in the river of Jordan. So there's a couple interesting things about what John's doing in, the, in this river. And, I, and I, I, I hope they're encouraging to you. First, the Jewish faith had a place for baptism. 
So if you were a practicing Jew, baptism was not unfamiliar to you. But there was only one category that got baptized. And it was the Gentile that wanted to convert to Judaism. So if you were not a Jewish person, but you wanted to convert to Judaism, so you were a, a race other than the race of Israel, other than a Jew, a Jewish person, then in order to become a Jew, you had to, you had to get baptized. And so they had a category for baptism, but only the dirty Gentiles, only the dirty outsiders had to get baptized. The other thing that's interesting, um, so, so clearly uh, John here is preaching, and he's like, everybody has to get baptized. Everybody. They're used to just saying the dirty outsiders. And John says, everybody needs to. They went into the waters. If you were a converting Gentile, if you went into the waters, you baptized yourself. You, you went into the, into the pool of water and you immersed yourself as this converting, dirty outsider, Gentile, who was going to become a Jew. John the Baptist is baptizing them. John the, baptize, John, the, John the baptizer is in the water and he is immersing them and bringing them out of the water. And so John, John is doing two things that are unique. They're used to saying only dirty outsiders need to be baptized. John says everybody needs to be baptized. They're used to baptizing themselves and John says, no, no, not this baptism. You, you need help. You can't do this yourself. You, you, need, you need somebody else's involvement here. So John's saying you all need to be baptized. John's saying everybody needs it, and you can't do it yourself. That is why John gets so fired up in verses 7 through 10. Because who shows up? In that day... They were the best of the best. It was the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They show up because they hear something's happening out in the wilderness. So they go out to check it out. And John is baptizing these people who are confessing of their sins. And then Matthew gives an incredible contrast. Look at verse 7. But. What's he telling us? He says, John's out there dealing with genuine people People who are hearing his message of repentance and they're admitting their sins and they are aligning themselves with the coming kingdom. They're like, we, we need to be ready for this kingdom. We don't even know what it is, but it's right behind John and we want to be ready. It's a baptism of alignment. It's this confession and repentance, this recognition that something is about to happen and we want to be aligned with it. And then Matthew says, but he looked up and the point is, it's a contrast here. The people in the water were genuinely repenting and confessing. He looks up and he sees the religious leaders to see the show. They're there for ulterior motives. And John the Baptist sees it and it doesn't take him one second to boil over. I mean, the first thing he says to them is, you brood of vipers. Like, I mean, he's in here like dealing with genuine people in this spiritual experience. And then he looks up and it's like immediately level 10. You brood of vipers. Who told you about this? What are you doing out here? I know what's going on in you. I know how you roll. I know what you're thinking. I know how you practice. I know what's going on in your heart. He looks at them and immediately is furious because this is a crowd that while they had good PR in first century, they are intensely self-righteous. And John the Baptist is out there saying, that won't work. And now here's a huge crowd. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's saying, it's not gone deep enough for you guys. 
Everything's external. Yeah, okay, you, you do all these deeds, you do all these actions, but that's not the point of this. It's a relationship. It's got to get deeper. You need to bear fruit, genuine fruit of repentance, not keep putting on the show. And then he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, oh, don't you know who we are? Don't you know my family tree? Don't you know what I was born into? Don't you know who I am? And John the Baptist immediately says, and don't pull the Abraham stuff. Don't pull the grandpa card. The grandpa card's not going to work. You want to know why? Because from these stones, God could raise up his children. God, God, God's the one who gives life. God's the one who makes a heart new. And it's like, you don't get to play the family tree, not on this one. He's like, you're not gone deep enough. You've got all these externals. You've got all these, these, these outside things. God is after your heart. And so John, in kind of Old Testament prophet, uh, prophet kind of way, just goes after them and drops the, you know, drops the hammer. And it, the, I mean, part of it is because he is out there saying, I know you guys know what you think you know what baptism is. I'm talking about something else. This isn't a baptism for Gentile converts. This, this, this is a, a baptism of confession and repentance and an alignment with the coming kingdom. Come here. Everybody needs this, and you can't do it yourself. We get to verse 11 and 12, and we find out a little bit more about what John's baptism was and that it's different than what Jesus is going to do. This is what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I, I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's saying, I'm out here doing a baptism, but it's not the same thing as being baptized into Christ. It's not the same thing as what Jesus is going to bring. John is doing a baptism of alignment. John is saying, get your hearts ready because the kingdom's right behind me. Get your hearts ready because that Messiah that we've been waiting for, he's showing up. And if you, if you have a heart that's sensitive to this, if you recognize the severity of sin that it separated you from the God who made you, then get in the water and let's get our hearts aligned on this because it's around the corner. None of us know what to expect, but it's coming. And so it's like a baptism of alignment. But he looks at the crowd after he you know, rips the Pharisees' heads off. He looks back at the crowd and he says, I'm, just, I'm baptizing you in a water, in water, the Jordan River. Like, it's just water. It's a baptism of alignment. But boy, the Messiah, the one who's right behind me, he's going to do something notably more. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, it's almost like John saying, you think my baptism is something? Watch out. The one who's coming behind me is offering something way more. Now, this phrase, Holy Spirit and fire, it's super complicated, and commentators and theologians wrestle with it a, a lot, uh, and there are a number of, of options. Um, but, but Dale Bruner offers this idea that it is likely that Matthew, and then Mark, who uses a similar phrase in his gospel, that Matthew is suggesting that Jesus' whole ministry on earth will be baptizing us with the Spirit and with fire. And, and what, what Dale Bruner means is this. Every time Jesus speaks, he either washes us with the Spirit of God or he burns us. His words either wash us or his words burn us. When Jesus talks, something happens. 
When the crowds are listening to him, it's not just sound waves. Something's happening when Jesus is at work. Your heart is either getting washed by the Spirit of God or it's getting burned, in a sense, in judgment. If you reject it, it gets harder. If you receive it, it gets softer. In the Old Testament, we are told that the word of the Lord never returns void. Maybe you remember hearing that phrase at some point in your life. The word of the Lord never returns void. You might be like, what what does that mean? I, I take that verse to mean this, that when the word of the Lord is spoken, something happens. Your heart is either getting softer or harder. Your heart is either getting washed or it's getting burned. Is it possible that when Jesus, in his earthly ministry, talks, that that's what's happening? You bet it's possible because he is the Lord. The word of the Lord does not return void. When Jesus speaks, something happens in the hearts of the hearers. They are either growing softer as they receive it, getting washed in the spirit, or they are getting harder as it functions as judgment, as fire. It's doing something. And Matthew is inviting us to realize that when Jesus speaks, it never returns void. It's either washing you with the blessings of the Spirit of God or it burns you with the fire of judgment. So John, as you can see, is kind of functioning like an Old Testament prophet. He's bringing the hammer. And it's like, boy, did he ever bring the hammer. He brings the hammer of repent of your sins. The kingdom's behind me. And if you're not ready, it's going to be bad for you. And then the self-righteous show up and he drops the hammer on the self-righteous. Brood of vipers. I know what's going on in you. You think your family tree gets it done for you. None of that's going to work. It can't be external. It's got to be internal. And it's just like Old Testament prophet, fire and brimstone, drop the hammer. And boy, is he ever setting up the table for Jesus. John has heavy things to say. Well, John's like, the kingdom's coming. Trust me. It's behind me. It's, it's around the corner. Look at verse 13. <laughs> then Jesus came from Galilee. Okay, I guess it's, uh, it's here. It's not just coming, like it's arrived. Je- Jesus is here. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, don't forget John's description of Jesus in the last verses, in, in verses 11 and 12. I mean, if you read through those verses, he says, when he shows up, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear this threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's like, whoa, I don't know if I want Jesus to show up. I'm not sure. Like, that's really, really intense. And then the next phrase is, he's here. He's right here. He showed up at the river too. John seems to be saying, you think I have bad news, just you wait. The one behind me has worse news. He's going to burn all the chaff. He's going to light this place on fire. And Jesus shows up. But where? Where Where does Jesus show up? Man, this is such good news. Jesus shows up among the people waiting to be baptized. One commentator said it would be like this. If you remember back in the old tent revival days, it would almost be like this. If one were to announce there was a, you know, a coming, there's a preacher and he's going to come later this week at this series of evangelistic meetings and he's going to show up and he's the best preacher we know and he's going to bring revival and he's going to drop the hammer and he's going to let you have it and he's going to bring, you know, bring, bring the gospel and he's going to do all of these things. And then that preacher shows up a day early 
And he doesn't show up on the platform. He shows up in the chairs. He doesn't show up with the microphone. He shows up at the altar. He shows up not as the one to like put the spotlight on himself, but the one to receive, in a sense. It, it's disruptive. And it's disruptive for all of us. I mean, what, what is going on? John seems to suggest that while, or Matthew seems to be suggesting that while John is dropping the hammer, Jesus is going to drop the sledgehammer. That's, that's what you feel. You get to the end of verse 12 and it's like, whoa, if John's this harsh, the one after him is going to be 10 times harsher. Yet here is Jesus waiting in line to be baptized by John. And if you're surprised, man, you are not the only one. Look at John's reaction in verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So if you're confused by this, join the club because John has no idea what's going on. John's like, you forgot the script, man. Like, this is not what's supposed to happen. I was the, you know, I was the, the uh, lead up. I was supposed to prime the pump and then you're supposed to hammer them. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? You're in the wrong spot. Come up here. Come up here. Let me give you the microphone. No, that's not what happens. He wants to correct Jesus. He actually says that he wants to prevent him. John thinks he's got it backwards. So what's going on here? Well, let's, let's see. So Jesus has shown up. What, what does Jesus have to say? Now, we are going to revisit verses 15 through 17 next week. So I'm going to leave a lot on the table here, just FYI. Um, but look specifically at verse 15 here. Okay? In, in, in verse 14, John says, we need to reverse this. I, I don't baptize you. You baptize me. I just talked about how awesome you were going to be. I just talked about how awesome your baptism is going to be. And now you want me to baptize you? I just said I'm the JV team, and now you want, you want me to. So that's verse 14. Verse 15, these are, these are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Matthew. How does Matthew want you to meet Jesus from his own mouth? After all that time of consideration of how Matthew wanted to assemble his gospel, how does he introduce you to Jesus? This is what he says, verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is like, it's, it's okay for now. It's all right for now. That, that's our introduction to Jesus. It, it's okay for now. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Matthew loves the word righteousness, loves it, uses it uh, more than any other gospel writer, and he is a big fan of it. And a lot of scholars have concluded that, Matt, like, uh, that Matthew's definition of this word righteousness is doing the will of the Father. Like if you, were to have, if you had one phrase, what does Matthew mean when he uses the term righteous or righteousness? He means doing the will of the Father. That's what the righteous person does. So the Father has the relational component. Doing the will has the obedience component. And Matthew says, this is what Jesus is here for, for righteousness. And so Jesus' first words in Matthew's gospel are, John, don't get too worked up about it right now. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's appropriate. Jesus says, it's appropriate for me to get baptized with your baptism. Because this is according to the Father's will. This is what God's calling his people to do. God's calling his people to align with that message. See, Jesus didn't have any sins to confess. Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. But the message that John was preaching is the message that the Father wants to be spoken, 
wants to be preached. He wants people to align with his work in the world. And so Jesus says, I'm getting in the water to affirm what you're saying. This is right. This is what people should be doing. They should be preparing their hearts in response to the realities of sin in the world. And so Jesus says it's appropriate. It's, it, this is right. I should be baptized by you. I mean, just think about this. Jesus could have been standing with John preaching, but instead he's standing down with the people. As he does that, he is affirming his solidarity with sinners. Jesus is, is down with the people, making himself one with them in the process of salvation that he and only he could actually achieve. And so there's this, this oneness that Jesus is experiencing with the people who are in desperate need of a rescue. Jesus says, I, I can relate. I, I, I'm, I'm among you. Listen, remember the two things that were different about how John approached baptism? Only Gentile converts needed to get baptized, and they baptized themselves. And then John comes along and says, no, everybody needs to be baptized, and you can't do it yourself. Repent. Prepare yourself. Like, get, get ready for this message that's to come. John's not wrong. Everybody needs to confess their sins and be washed. No one can do it themselves. And Jesus was going to bring a bigger hammer than John. John's not wrong about any of those things. Here's what he didn't know. That the message of Jesus is just more scandalous than he could have guessed. The message of Jesus is an absolute scandal. Everyone needs to be baptized. No one can do it themselves. Jesus has a huge hammer of judgment. But what John didn't realize is that that sledgehammer was actually going to fall on Jesus. That all the judgment for all of that sin was going to go on the shoulders of Jesus himself. And he was going to go to the cross in order to win for us the rescue that we most desperately needed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read this. For our sake, he made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. John's not wrong. Everybody needs the baptism that Jesus is bringing. Nobody can do it themselves. Jesus' judgment is 10 times bigger than John's. But nobody saw Jesus taking it all on himself. You see, the price tag for our baptism into Christ, the baptism that we most desperately need, is more costly than John or any one of us could have ever guessed. Our rescue comes at no cost to us. Totally free. Grace alone. But it comes at infinite cost to Jesus. Jesus became sin, who was eternally sin-free. He became a curse so that we could be brought in. This Messiah, this, this, the only one who could do it, wanted to do it. Do you know that? In the book of Hebrews, we are told that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus took the sledgehammer, and he wanted to take the sledgehammer so that you could be brought into the family of God. So you could be baptized into Christ, immersed into Christ, covered with Christ, and brought into right relationship with the God of heaven. Listen, this, this, this text is telling us Jesus really is all we need. 
really is. He is all we need. He will deal with your biggest problem. He will forgive you. He will wash you. He will welcome you. Jesus didn't need John, but John and you and me, we we desperately need Jesus. Jesus didn't need to deal with his own sin, but we desperately need Jesus to deal with our sin. Jesus is really all we need. Now, let let me close with this, because here's the deal. We don't think we're going to forget that message of the gospel, but we do forget it. We we don't think that we're going to forget the centrality of that news, that I could never do this myself. I need rescue from the outside, and Jesus is the only one who can do it. So so my my favorite author, pastor, writer, his name's Tim Keller. He he defines revival, we're talking about that a little bit today, as an intensification of the normal operations of the Spirit. So he says some people think of revival, and it's like super like sign gifts, like miracles, healings, things like that. Other people think of uh, of revival, and they think of it as like tent meetings. It's like more, more, more uh, longer preaching, more nights of the week, more. And, and Tim Keller says I, I, he actually thinks that the best case to make for revival is it's an intensification for sure, but of the normal operations of the Spirit. That, that means through the conviction of sin, through people coming to faith, through walking in obedience, through being, p- people being assured that Jesus really does save them. Like it's not a question mark, it's not a coin toss. Like, you can know for sure, you can be assured that Jesus actually really does rescue you. So he says that revival is an intensification of the normal operations of the Spirit through the ordinary means of grace, through preaching, prayer, and the sacraments, baptism and communion. In other words, there's quite a bit of normality to all of this. And yet, it's like the heat gets turned up. It's doing the same things. It's pursuing God through those same avenues that he's always offered us, but the heat just gets turned up. And we start to see some some life in places that we weren't seeing it before. And my favorite little trifecta of what, what happens when we see revival is this. We see sleepy Christians waking up. People who've confessed Christ, but we've gotten caught in the, like, we're in the rut, man. We, we, are, we are spending our time and our, 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 our money and our energy on things that we know don't matter. And we've just become apathetic and lazy. And one of the signs of revival is that sleepy Christians wake up. The second sign of revival is that nominal Christians realize they've never trusted Christ in the first place. Gone to church their whole life. They, 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 maybe they think of themselves as a Christian, but when they realize this, sin is this problem that has separated me from God, and Christ alone can solve that problem by taking my sin on himself and giving me his righteousness. Nominal Christians, people that think of themselves as Christians, gone to church their whole life, realize I've never actually believed that. I've never actually professed Christ. So sleepy Christians waking up, Nominal Christians coming to faith for the first time. And then the third one is that seekers, hardened people who are far from God, get really curious as they see the beauty of the gospel on display in God's people. So I don't know what you think about revival, and I don't know what you think about what's going on at Asbury University. And I don't know what you think is going to happen Wednesday night or Thursday night here at our church. But this is what we're praying for, and it's not new. We've prayed for these things for years that sleepy Christians would wake up, that I would wake up, that nominal Christians would come to faith 
and that people who are far from God would be drawn in by the beauty of it all. And you want to be part of that? Here's, here's where to start. Richard Lovelace says, start right here. Commit yourself to understanding, being aware of the holiness of God, and commit yourself to being aware of the severity of sin in you and in, in, your, in your community. The holiness of God and your sin, the, the destruction of sin. As you hold on to those two things, you are prepping the ground for that kind of revival, for that kind of an awakening, for that kind of a, an opening in the work of God in your life. So get in the word of God, confess your sin. L- listen to John the Baptist. He was before Jesus came, but the same message is for us. Confess your sins, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Christ is, is, is here and he is ready. And trust in the work of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ on your behalf. So we come to the table at the end of our services. We take the bread and we take the cup. And it's an invitation, man. That bread represents the body of Christ and this cup represents the blood of Christ. And they are for you. You know, a moment ago I said that the sledgehammer that Jesus brought fell on him. That judgment fell on him. Well, this is, this is what we're remembering here is that if Jesus didn't take that punishment, then the only one left to take it is me. And then that would have been the greatest of all tragedies. But instead, the one who knew no sin took my sin so that I could be made right with God. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come, take this bread, take this cup. If you're not, there's some prayers on the screen, and we invite you to stay in your seat, and instead of receiving these elements, receive Christ. And if people have to climb over you, great. Like, we're used to that. So don't, 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 don't be self-conscious. Just let, 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 this, let this work of God through the Spirit of God happen uh, in your life right now. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this congregation that's gathered here right now. We thank you for the moving of the Spirit, maybe at Asbury uh, um, University, maybe at other colleges around our country. God, maybe right here in this room right now. Maybe there are individuals, individual people right here who need to to wrestle with this call from John the Baptist that is echoed throughout the New Testament. The call to to repent of our sins and and run to this Savior, Jesus, who offers the only baptism that that we really need. To be baptized into him, to be immersed into him, to be made new and washed clean. God, our hearts are hard. My, my heart is hard. My default, my default position is, is to want to do my own thing. I, I can resonate with anyone who's in that boat. But God, would you give us a soft heart right now, a willingness to actually be open to, to what it is that you might be calling us to. God, we, we, we don't want to be sleepy anymore. We, we don't want to be self-deceived anymore. We don't want to be far from you anymore. So God, draw us near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.